We're glad you're here to worship with us this morning, and uh, we're going to continue in our series through the book of Romans. So if you have a Bible, turn there. We'll be in Romans chapter 1 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me just talk a little bit about Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was known as the spokesman for democracy. He was known also as one of America's founding fathers and the principal author of the Declaration of Independence and the third president of the United States. All very monumental things for our nation. But he's also known for the Jefferson Bible. Do you know this book? The Jefferson Bible, or it's also entitled The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. It's arguably the, the most controversial religious book produced in America's founding era. In that book, Jefferson took it upon himself to just clip and delete things he didn't agree with. Although some popular Christian writers have tried to claim that Jefferson was a Christian, he was actually a deist, whose contempt for traditional Christian beliefs became more clear in his retirement. Jefferson reviled beliefs like the Trinity and the virgin birth, and he called those irrational and implausible. He also rejected the idea of the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, the last verse of Jefferson's Bible says, Jesus' disciples rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. If Jesus isn't alive, what hope do we have? There was no resurrection in his Bible. Jefferson's been known for many great things, as I listed many good things for our country, but his reputation will be known as a Christian imposter. He wasn't a Christian. Somebody ask, what do you want to be known for? You think about that in the context of your career. A lot goes into a career, a lot of time, a lot of change, a lot of work goes into your career. You invest uh, an immense amount of yourself into whatever form your career takes, especially as a leader in your profession. And with all this considered, your reputation is the only thing you will really get to keep for all the work that you do. The titles go away, the money you earn will eventually be spent, your responsibilities will eventually be given to someone else, but you will keep your reputation. And what do you want to be known for? When, when people talk about you to others, what, what would you like them to say about you? How do you view a rep- reputation in this world? Is, is, is a reputation even worth considering? Or, or is it better for us not to even be concerned with it at all? Well, the answer to that question probably depends upon what you have a reputation for right now. Regardless, our reputation trails with us in our life, whether we like it or not. And when we come to the next eight verses in Romans chapter 1, we come to the people of God in Rome, and they had a reputation that preceded them. Paul says in verse 8 that their faith was well known throughout the world. Their faith is what their reputation was centered on. So what are you known for? What would you like to be known for in your life? Well, here's the main idea. Here's the main thrust this morning as we go through Romans chapter 1, 8 through 15. This main idea is this. The people of God should be known for their faith, encouragement, and eagerness to share the gospel with everyone. The people of God should be known for their faith, encouragement, and eagerness to share the gospel with everyone. And there's three points as we go through that. I'm a good Baptist preacher. 
an esteemed faith, an encouraging spirit, and an eagerness to preach. So I'm going to read here. I'm actually going to read all of one thus far. Chapter 1, Romans, verse 1 through verse 15. So follow with me as I read. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, concerning his son who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God, in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that you have sent Jesus to die for us so that we can be called your people. And I pray that we would be encouraged this morning to be a people known for our faith and encouragement to one another and our eagerness to share this gospel with those we come in contact with. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So first is an esteemed faith. The people of God should have a reputation in the world. And, and we heard what Paul says about that reputation in verse 8. He says, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith was proclaimed in all the world. And then he talks about a little bit of his, his desire to be there. Verse 9, For God am I, is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I mention you. Always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul is, again, talking about his desire to serve them. As Paul writes to them, he wants them to know and understand that his relationship to them is not just based upon his authority to preach as an apostle, but it's a pastoral relationship in which he regularly prays for them. And Paul is thankful for them and their love for Jesus and their love for the church. And his thanksgiving flows here from humility before God himself. Proud people do not regularly give thanks, either to God or to other people. Proud people think they are enough. So why would they give thanks to anyone else? Proud people usually think that they deserve what is good. They tend to be critical and complaining and discontent. And so a proud person is not in the practice of being thankful toward God or to others. But humble, grace-filled people say thanks frequently. They're thankful people. Humble people recognize that they need others and they welcome people into their lives and give thanks for their presence in their lives. And Paul was a regular demonstrator of humility toward those that he ministered to and he writes to. 
And Paul here, he's praying through Christ, the mediator who established the church and who provided access to the Father. And the word asking here in verse 10 means to plead for something and has this air of urgency to it. And he also invokes God as his witness to assure the Romans that he has regularly prayed. You can call on God. He'll back me up. I've regularly prayed to have an opportunity to visit you. But he was hindered from coming. I'm I'm sure Paul was motivated to come and see them. And I guess his prayers were really probably about their spiritual growth and their encouragement in the gospel. But he yearned to see them for himself. But, But God's will at this time was a no. He couldn't come. Sometimes in our prayers for others, we want to be the means to that answer. But sometimes God says no. Friend, if you're praying for someone, do not think your prayers are ineffective just because God is not using you to answer those prayers. God has infinite resources to bring the answer, and it may not be you. He may be answering your prayers by using other children. Honestly, if I reflect on this and talk to many of you, this is how many of our prayers are answered for our children, right? When they grow up and go out of the house. It's usually not answered through mom and dad. It's usually answered by someone else that God chooses. And amen for that, right? Paul had this passion to pray for others. And he's teaching in this. And I wonder, do we have that same passion to pray for other people? Do we have the same vibrant, passionate prayer life filled with thanksgiving and intercession and submission to God's will? I believe we all can grow in these areas. Perhaps maybe this morning you can be encouraged to find another Christian here and and look to grow together by praying with one another praying through the church family, through the member directory, praying for those that that you know aren't aren't following Christ and begin that habit of prayer together. Prayer definitely changes things. I've I've heard it asked and written, perhaps you've heard it too, does does prayer change things or does prayer change people? And, And I think that's a great question and I would probably answer both. Prayer does change things since God responds to prayer and and frequently answers. James talks about that. You do not have because you do not ask. So, So prayer does change things. But I'm convinced that far more frequently in our lives, God uses prayer to change us. Prayer brings us into the very presence of God. And when you're in the presence of God, you have your eyes open to spiritual realities. And when you see and understand God, you never go away the same. Anytime someone comes into the presence of God, they always come away changed, altered. See, prayer changes us. And friends, if we're too busy to pray, then we're too busy. We each have been given the same exact amount of time each day. So if we're too busy to pray, then we're, we're saying that we consider other things to be more important than praying. And God isn't so much concerned about how much we pray, but that we do pray, that we talk with him. So don't get caught up. Don't take this as a way to, to now you gotta, you gotta go half hour, an hour. I gotta get up at 5 a.m. Now, don't take it that direction. Take it from the direction of, I need to spend time with the Lord. And, and pray, pray as you're on your way to work. Pray as you're at work. Pray as you're at school, kids. Pray right now while I'm preaching. 
I'm praying as I preach, believe it or not. I'm praying for those that receive God's word. I'm communicating with him. We can pray at any time, in any way, and our God is big enough to hear those prayers. And so may we be known as a people of prayer. But what does Paul praise the Romans for primarily? What are they known for here? He says their faith. Their faith was known and was proclaimed in all the world. And at this stage of of church history, the the gospel message of faith of the Christians that compromised the church in Rome is being demonstrated in the world, which would mean really the whole Roman Empire, which was vast at this point. The empire would would extend as far as to present-day Great Britain and to the south, to North Africa. As we read in Acts 8, the gospel had even moved outside of the, the Roman borders to places like Ethiopia and most likely to other language groups because they would be present there on the day of Pentecost. And how did the gospel reach far and wide throughout the Roman Empire? Through people. Man is God's method. The growth of the church has always been dependent on the openness of believers to express their faith by sharing the gospel. The gospel spreads through people, through their faith expressed in their testimonies of who God is and what God has done through their lives. And so let me ask, are are we known as a church, Edgewood Bible Church, for our strong faith? People know that about us outside of our church. Would, Would people living in Edgewood or wherever you live in the surrounding area give testimony to the fact that they have heard about our faith and we are well known as people who have a strong faith and trust in our God. How would people know if we have a genuine faith? Well, how do they know back then? They, they saw it in their lives. They didn't have newspaper, they didn't have television, they didn't have social media, praise the Lord. Their, their faith was spoken mouth to mouth, face to face by people. It was, and that's how revivals happen. See, revivals in history, um, a revival never needed to be advertised, friends. A real revival. It always advertises itself. A revival doesn't need um, a blast on social media and Facebook to get it out. That's not what revivals were. We tried to do that. We tried to manufacture revivals. But a true revival doesn't need any press. Why? Because it's its own advertisement. Seeing lives changed, that advertises something, right? That shows something to the world. And usually in history of genuine revivals, they usually begin in small groups. And when that news breaks, when people begin to see it and the difference of our lives, person to person, curiosity is awakened and people come because they want to see it for themselves. See, the work of God doesn't need our help of getting the news out there. The work of God happens and people see it and they respond. And so I pray that we would have a revival in our church. I pray more that we have a revival in our city. And you know what makes that prayer genuine? Is that if that revival happens in another church, I don't get upset. Because it wasn't about us. It was about what God's going to do. And so I pray that that happens in our area. That people would see people changed, turning from darkness to light. And I pray as a church family that we be known as a church where people believe what God has told us in the Bible and then we actually try to live it out. 
by God's strength, with his help, that we live out what the Bible says. I want EBC to be known as a church for strong faith in Jesus Christ, where, where people speak about Christ often and lovingly and fearlessly. I want our church to be known for faith, whether in good times or hard or in adversity or prosperity. And so I pray that as a church, we would be known for an esteemed faith in our community and throughout the world. So that's point number one. The people of God an esteemed faith we should long for. Then secondly, an encouraging spirit. Look at verse 11. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each, each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul had this affection for this budding church, even though he had never met them. The, the verb to long for in verse 11 is the same word you would use to describe a, a nursing infant for its mother's milk or a deer that pants for water. This is this longing that Paul talks about here. He desires, he longs to be with them, to be with other believers, to encourage them and to strengthen them. And, and what does he long to do? He wants, he wants to see them so I may impart to you, to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Paul does not use that phrase, spiritual gift, that he, it's not the same phrase as he uses in chapter 12 or either in 1 Corinthians 12. This isn't some additional gift to add on to the list of spiritual gifts. That's not what he's saying here. He wants to use the gifts that God has made him to be to serve others. And, and gifts, Paul's primary gifts was preaching and teaching. He, he wants to use his abilities to preach and to pastor them, to encourage them in their faith. And he longs that they might be strengthened. He and himself. Himself and them, sorry. And, and what would strengthen them? It was their mutual faith that they had in, in the Lord. And if any institution in the year 55 AD was, was tenuous by our standards, it was this small Christian church in a hostile Roman world. Small, insignificant, impoverished, living in the shadow of the strength and might of the most powerful government known in the world, in the city of Rome, this church needed, above all, to be more firmly established and strengthened in the Lord. They desperately needed the encouragement of the Apostle Paul. And Paul wants to use his gifts to encourage them. Friend, do you think about your gifts that way, like Paul does? God has gifted each of us in a certain way, not just for your own enjoyment and fulfillment, but to serve other people. When we only think of our gifts as a way to push ahead our own agenda, then we're misusing our gifts. So God has entrusted you with a set of gifts to serve other people, primarily in the church and outside of the church, so that God would get the glory and not us. Do we think about our gifts that way? Are you, are you looking for ways to encourage others through the gifts that God has given you? Well, Paul doesn't just want to give and serve the church and use his gifts this way. No, he says that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. See, Paul's gift was, desire was not just to give, but to receive. 
He's yearning to connect with the Roman believers. And it's a two-way street, he says. He wants to be mutually encouraged. And friends, what, what inspires and fortifies other believers in their walk with the Lord is when they see faith in other Christians. Seeing other believers trust in God in the course of their everyday life reminds us that God, in fact, is worthy of our trust too. And it stimulates us to have greater faith in him. That's why we encourage you, friends, to, to meet with one another outside of the Sunday gathering, to stimulate and encourage each other's faith in the Lord. You need encouragement from one another. You need to see each other and see how you're struggling and to encourage each other in those struggles in their faith. For me, this lap, past week, and I didn't get permission to say this, so I hope she's not upset. For me, it was seeing my sister Margo. I don't know if she remembers this. Right after the service last week, Margo, I asked her how she was doing. You know, her husband passed away a number of months ago. And to hear Margo talk about her beloved Don, who's with Jesus, encouraged my faith. And she was honest. She said, I have bad days and I have good days. And I appreciated that because that's sincere. I think we're like that. But seeing her faith in the Lord and where Don is encouraged my faith. And we are mutually encouraged just by talking for a, a brief moment, right? Just a brief moment. And it strengthens faith for us to keep pursuing Christ, to keep following him, especially when life is challenging. Paul recognized his own need for encouragement. And so he mentions this to the church, the mutual encouragement they need. See, Paul, like every other Christian, every other elder and pastor, needed encouragement by other believers. He needed it. And what we learn from that is that we need one another. We need other believers in our Christian life. Friends, a Christian is not an island, but rather part of a whole body of Christ. And if you're trying to live the Christian life by yourself, friend, you're doing it wrong. I say that with love. And I'll just say this, stop. That's why we gather here, to encourage one another. You and I need others. Furthermore, others need you. So don't just sit back and take from a church, but dive in and join a church and build relationships. Perhaps some of you think about church membership as some secret joining, or now you've got the elite status. But maybe you should look at it this way, as a way to encourage other believers to show your dedication to them by formally committing to them. See, we not only join a church as members for ourselves, we join a church for other Christians to encourage them, to help them, to actually and concretely commit to them. So we brought two families in front of the member uh, meeting last Sunday for membership. And, and we're communicating the desire to commit to our church. But that's not all. It's not, this, it's not just them committing to our church. It's us as members committing to them. We're making that formal declaration. We're saying as a church family, we're committed to you, to your spiritual growth, 
to your encouragement. You need us and we need you. So that means when you struggle, we struggle. When you rejoice, we rejoice. When you're, you're going through pain, we go through pain. See, that's, that's really a fuller picture of what membership is. It's not about numbers. It's not about reporting to other people or, or having this list. It's about loving one another and committing to one another because you need one another. You need encouragement from others and they need that from you. And if the Apostle Paul sought the encouragement and the faith of other believers, how much more should we do the same in our own lives? We need the church and the church needs you. Now when Paul speaks of their faith, he's speaking of how they are proclaiming the goodness of their God. Our faith is conclusive proof that we contribute nothing and God does everything. And the harvest, the fruit that Paul longs for is the work of God and the changing of lives to righteousness, both of conversions and growth and godliness. And so Paul wanted to with the right motivation to get to Rome quickly to encourage and to be encouraged. But he couldn't come any sooner to Rome. He couldn't get there. Something was preventing him to get to Rome. What was that? What was all those churches that he had his hand in starting in other areas? They needed more help. They needed more preaching. They needed more direction from the gospel. We learn through the rest of Scripture that Paul was tending to church problems in Antioch and Galatia and Corinth. Paul also had a few stints in prison, and he had a few beatings along the way. But his main goal, his aim, was to see churches strengthened and growing. Only when a church had reached the point of sufficient maturity as to be self-producing in the gospel did Paul feel that he could move on to a new field. And that's important for us just to recognize. Successful evangelism and church planning includes a lot of follow-up. It includes discipleship. Discipling those who have made a profession of faith is not an optional add-on to the Christian life, but a necessary next step in the Christian walk. The goal isn't just to get people to commit to Christ and say, you're good, we'll see you in heaven. No, it's to walk with them as they walk and follow Jesus Christ. And Paul was committed to those churches that he had, he had been a part of in establishing so that they could begin to, to produce spiritual fruit. See, worldly fruit springs up quicker than spiritual fruit. So we need to be patient and long-suffering. And Paul was longing to get to Rome. He, he, wanted, he wanted to see the fruit that had been there and produce even more fruit in the midst. But he was delayed. So how can we as EBC know this encouragement in reality? How can we see this fruit in our church family here as well? well Sunday by Sunday, week by week, as we meet together, we can be encouraged. We can be encouraged like Paul and the church in Rome by remembering that God has declared that Jesus, his son, that Jesus is his son and that he raised him from the dead to rule by power and that faith that we share in him will bring grace upon grace into the lives of us gathering each week to worship. We get peace from God when we gather as the church to worship him and remember and rejoice in what Christ has done in conquering death. See, when you come to church 
Each week, you come and gather with those who are in agreement and profess with our singing and with the reading of the Word and the preaching of the Word that all of this in the Scripture is true. We are reaffirming again, it's all true, and we do it gathered together, that Jesus is real, that He is alive, that He did all that He said He would do, and He's coming back again. Jesus is alive, friends, and we gather together to profess that every week. And he's growing us by the gathering in our godliness and faith as we walk together as a church family. When we see each other using our gifts, either in small and hidden ways like in the nursery or children's church or in front leading us in worship, we're encouraged in that way. And we realize that we can use our gifts too in service of Christ and encouragement of giving. And that encourages us and strengthens the church as we look to follow him. So, God's people should be known for their faith and encouragement. Third, we should be known for eagerness to preach. I have to admit something this morning, this third point. I've come to learn that through some research and study and some regular prodding by a member here, there is a difference between the words eager and anxious. Carl, your prayers have been answered. I now believe those two words are not interchangeable. Frederick William Hamilton said in 1918, anxious should not be confused with desirous. It means feeling anxiety. may seem simple to you, but for me, I I grew up learning that those two were interchangeable. And I'm not the only one. Jane Austen used it for years. Jane Austen. So I'm not the only one, Carl. But eagerness doesn't mean anxiousness. Paul writes in these last two verses that we'll look at, he says in verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And if you read on, this is what we're going to look at in a couple weeks, Lord willing. Verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He couldn't say that eagerness means anxiousness because the power lied in the gospel. It's It's in the gospel and God does the saving. So there's nothing to be worried about, Right? It's God who does the work. Paul was eager to unleash the gospel. He was zealous to share the gospel with those in Rome. He was eager and not anxious. Pray that I will continue to use those words appropriately. But he says here in these verses that he's under obligation. What does Paul mean there? I'm under obligation. Tim Keller in his commentary has a great description, so I'm just going to read what he wrote. He says, it is illustrative to think about how I can be in debt to you. First, you may have lent me $100 and I am in debt to you until I pay it back. But second, someone else may have given me $100 to pass on to you and I am in debt to you until I hand it on. It is in the second sense that Paul is obligated to everyone everywhere. God has shared the gospel with him but God has also commissioned him to declare it to others. So Paul owes people the gospel. That's what Paul is saying here. The idea is similar in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, where Paul says, for necessity is laid upon me, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. When we think about all the benefits won by Jesus Christ for us on the cross, it should motivate us to want to share these benefits with all of those that we come in contact with. If it's truly 
the best news in the world, friends, don't we want to share that with others? And so do you sense that same obligation to others that Paul has here? Do you realize, maybe afresh this morning, that we've been given such a gift in Jesus Christ, such a prized possession that we owe it to others to share the gospel? I believe that we owe people the gospel. We must tell them the gospel. And who does Paul here owe the gospel? Paul has some descriptions of those in his day. Some of those descriptions can be a little bit misleading. He, he talks about barbarians. And those really would be those that are the bottom of the, of the social class, the bottom of the ladder. They were foreigners in ancient Greek, and they were viewed as inferior, uneducated. They were suited for menial work. And the Greeks were the educated people who could speak Greek fluently. But the barbarians were those who, who couldn't speak Greek fluent. It would have been an insulting remark. But Paul is not trying to insult here. He's using their idioms, their descriptions, to point to the fact that the gospel is for everyone, high or low, no matter who it is. He's trying to say that every person comes empty-handed and they come equally to the cross of Jesus Christ. I had a professor in college who would say this over and over. Friends, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level. We all come the same. There is no hierarchy. And it applies to us. This, this understanding of us sharing the gospel applies here today in our culture. And perhaps you're here this morning and you feel disadvantaged. You'll f- you feel cut off from the world. There are many that, that experience this in our world. You may, f- you may feel cut off because of lack of educational opportunities that you've not had. So many that you're around and talk to have been to college, but you haven't. You don't read the books that they read. You, you're not up with the buzzwords. and you, you, don't know, you're, you know you're not as educated as everyone else, so you feel cut off. And still there's others that feel cut off because of their race and their ethnicity. And you've experienced setbacks because of where you come from or your people group. See, Paul recognized this was common to those who lived among the Romans. And it's common today. There are many who are disadvantaged because of their race, their ethnicity. Or you may feel cut off because of your income level, which shows itself in the way that you dress or the car you drive, or the neighborhood, or house you live in, and you haven't had the same level of opportunities of others because of that. And for those reasons and many others that I could talk about, you, you feel left out. And, and you look at what the world calls Christian people, and you think, those aren't my people. I don't belong in their company. I'm different than them. Christianity is, is their religion. It's not mine. But that isn't true, friends. God and Jesus Christ came to the least of these. He came to different ethnic groups. He came to those who were not educated. He came to those that didn't have much money. He came for everyone. And Christians today may have forgotten that Jesus didn't go to the wealthy. He didn't go to the influential people when he was on earth. He went to the everyday people, whoever and wherever they were. That's why he was called by others a friend of sinners. His friends were not high. They were not mighty. 
They were carpenters and fishermen and tax collectors. His friends were not the elite. See, friends, the the ground is truly level at the foot of the cross. And we all come the same way to Jesus Christ. There are no elite people in the kingdom of God. And shame on us to think so. That is not in step with the gospel. That is a whole nother gospel. And so, friend, if you feel cut off, if you feel like you're an outsider, that you just don't belong, you need to understand that you're the exact person that Jesus came to save. The gospel is for you. You may be a young person here, and you may think this is just all for older people to, to, thought, to think through and to consider that it's not for me. I, I, it's different. I have the whole life in front of me. I can talk about those things and think about those things later. And you might have great plans. You might be placing God nowhere in those plans. And I tell you this morning, kids, teens, the gospel is for you, and it needs to be accepted today. Charles Spurgeon once said in a talk with kids, you may be young, but you're old enough to sin, and you're old enough to die. And as long as that is true, you need a savior. And you may be here now on the other spectrum, an older person, with just a few number of years before you. And you may think perhaps that life is just about over. And these decisions, they're, they're for young people. I'm, I'm already too far gone. You've got decades of sin behind you and you think, I, I'm not worth it. You think it's too late, too late to make any changes, too late to turn your life around, to follow Jesus. But especially you need to listen to the gospel and respond. Entrust yourself to God and follow him. He will make those changes in your life by his power and not by yours. And soon you will stand before your maker, God. And you'll have to give an account for all those years of sinning. And you will want to stand before God with Christ by your side. See, God sent his son to come and to live and to die and rise from the dead for you because you couldn't save yourself. You needed someone else to take your place. So no matter if you feel disadvantaged, Jesus has come to die for you and to take your sins upon himself, to take your place so that you could have his righteousness. And friends, that is an amazing exchange. That he takes our sin and we get his righteousness. And your response now is to turn from sin, turn from trusting in yourself and trust in Jesus Christ alone. You've heard the gospel here this morning and you'll have to tell God on that day that you rejected it if you ignore this call of salvation. So friends, turn to Jesus Christ today. Make today the day of your salvation. If you have more questions, and perhaps you do, I would love to talk with you. I know there's other pastors who love to talk to you. We owe it to you. Like Paul says, we owe it to you. We want to joyfully and gladly walk through this with you. You know, the great 19th century missionary Hudson Taylor who went to China, Zach and I were just talking about him this week, when, when someone came to him and suggested that he, get, that he gave his life to the Orient because he loved the Chinese people, he, he would shake his head and, and answered thoughtfully, no, not because I loved the Chinese, but because I loved God. 
Our friends, what zeal would come into our evangelism and in our lives if we saw our motivation to share the gospel with others as great debtors to our neighbors and our community and our families because we love God so much that we want them to know and understand and we would recognize that we owe it to them to be faithful, that we would feel that obligation that Paul feels for those that we live among, that we want his name to be magnified in this world instead of ours, instead of others. And Paul is eager to preach this gospel. He's eager to preach this gospel to those who are outside the church. But Paul also says he's eager and under obligation to preach to those in Rome also. And the herald owes it to the people to share the good news of the new king that has been installed. And he owes it to the king and he owes it to the people. If he doesn't share the good news, he will incur the anger of the king. And he's in fact rejecting the rule of this king by keeping the news to himself. And Paul sees himself as a man who cannot rest until every gospel sent is paid to every debtor. Whether that's Greeks or barbarians or wise or fools alike, and whether that's outside of the church or inside of the church, the gospel must go forth. And we know that Christians, at least you've heard it from me, right? Christians need to hear the gospel. We need to be reminded of the gospel. It's, it's not just that unbelievers come into our midst to hear the gospel. We as Christians need to hear the gospel. Part of the reason why we share the gospel every week is to call those to turn who, are, who have no relationship with Christ to turn and follow him, but it's to encourage you and it's to train you so that you will go out and share the gospel. If we didn't do this, we would just be a very good Jewish church that never glorifies and glories ourselves in Jesus Christ. We cannot do that. The gospel must continue to be shared here. Everyone needs to hear the gospel, both you inside the church and you outside of the church. And the gospel is the way people are called to faith. And the gospel is the way that we grow in our faith. So we need to be eager to share it and to hear it and to read about it. One little book that's on the bookstall is called The Gospel Primer. It's written probably 15 years ago. It's a good devotional book. If you want to spend more time in this and thinking and meditating the gospel, I know there's a couple copies. You can race after the service to go get one. But I would encourage you to get a copy of that, The Gospel Primer. Well, we need to come full circle here. Coming back to that beginning question that I opened this morning. What do you want to be known for? You know, Paul was known for being a faithful witness for the Lord, preaching the gospel from town to town. He was known for wanting to make God big. And the church in Rome was known for their faith, for their dedication to the Lord to, and desiring the, the ministry of Paul. What are we known for here in Edgewood? What are we known for here? What would people know about our church family here? How about you personally in your daily life, either at work or at in your neighborhood or at school? What is your reputation about? What do you want to be known for? See, worldly great greatness springs up quicker than spiritual greatness. So what are you pursuing in your life here? I pray that we would be encouraged this morning to press into Jesus Christ, to meditate on him and what he's done for us on the cross, and to be used by him through faith and encouragement in evangelism in this world.